0: Came to us through sacrifice. Oh, hear the faithful words of Christ. Please be seated. Uh, we take the next move in the service to to recognize and to honor our children's presence uh, here with us. Uh, just a reminder that we do that because we believe that there's something about the posture of children that teaches us what it means to be present to Jesus. And we also believe that they're fully a part of us. Uh, So, in that vein, uh, we bless them and honor them. Um, They've disappeared. Okay, that's fine. We can bless them from here. (laughs) Uh, But we've got a few over in this general vicinity. So, children of God, the Lord be with you as you worship. Amen. Let's pray as we continue to worship. God, we thank you that through the Spirit, applying Christ's work to our lives, that we can be in your presence and uh, along with the heavenly host, sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that when we do so, that we are not destroyed, but that we encounter your love. God, thank you that because of Jesus uh, tonight that we can turn and be healed. And so as we come under your word tonight, that's what we want to do is to continue the process of turning toward you so that we can be healed. So we ask that your spirit would illuminate our hearts, would illuminate the text, would illuminate everything that needs illuminated so that we can do that tonight. And we pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's the season of Epiphany, and continues to be the season of Epiphany. Uh, For those of you for whom this is your first night, or the first night in a while, uh, this is what we're walking through. The church calendar, the liturgical year that orients, that helps orient our whole lives under the reality that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Lord over all things. And so, this is Epiphany. And we've been talking about it enough. Can someone really quickly tell me what does epiphany mean? Anybody? What is revealed. revealed? Good. What else does it mean? Revealing of Christ as king in our world. Yes, revealing of Christ as king in our world. Amen to that. <laughs> yeah, it's a revelation. It's a manifestation. It's a it's an unfolding uh, we say that Jesus is the epiphany of God, that he makes known to us the saving purposes of God. Put another way, that, that we acknowledge that um, in the gift of Christ and, and when we gaze at Christ, we see God. We see the saving purposes of God. There is no, there is no purpose of God. There is no attitude of God hidden behind Jesus. That if we want to know what God is like, if we want to know what God is up to, then we look at Jesus. We look to Jesus, and so we, uh, this epiphany, have been um, desiring to gaze, to set our eyes on Jesus. Not just to look at Jesus, but to gaze at Jesus so that our life can be caught up into Jesus' life. We can see our life caught up into his life, and so that then we can become an epiphany, a revelation, a witness to God's saving purposes in all the world. And so one of the question, questions that I want to raise tonight that may have already been raised by you as, as we've thought about, what does it mean to gaze at Jesus? Is just this question. Where do we do that? Right? Where do we do that? So here, right? Okay. Somewhere around here, we, we gaze at Him, maybe in the interior part of our hearts. Maybe you do it when you look at the cross. Maybe some of this art reminds you Is it like draws you into that? Maybe uh, the table, like when you gaze at the table and find yourself coming to the table. Uh, But other than that, like what does it mean? How do we gaze? Do we just look at the at the Bible? Like what does that mean? Where do we gaze? Where do we gaze at Jesus to discover what what Jesus is revealing to us about God's saving purposes, not just abstracted from our life, but that actually matter for our life. And this is an important question because we live in a world where there are other icons other images, other pictures that we gaze at all the time. In fact, whether we choose to or not, they're kind of pushed into our, into our gaze, where we, have to, where we have to look at them sometimes, it seems. And some of these icons, some of these images, some of these pictures that we find ourselves intentionally or unintentionally gazing at distance us from reality and push us into a zone a fantasy. Uh, the other day, I was looking at Instagram. I'm sure you guys are uh, familiar with Instagram. A lot of icons, a lot of images there. And uh, I was struck. Um, it didn't, it didn't like, occur to me at first, but, but as I was scrolling through the feed of Instagram, it became uh, uh, clear to me that Instagram's algorithm for figuring out who I am and and what I need to see in their image feed um, meant that I started noticing in my my feed these uh, before and after pictures show up in my feed. You guys know what I'm talking about? And the before and after pictures that were showing up in my feed um, were uh, before and after pictures of like it was, it was of men who were like in a certain state of just regular guys before, I'm just a regular guy, and then after they were like super fit and jacked and really healthy and strong looking. And so it's like somehow Instagram must have figured out that like I'm not 25 anymore and I'm starting to like feel the anxiety of age. But so, so, as, and it, like, none of this is in the foreground for me. So it's like I'm absorbing these images, I'm gazing at these images, and I'm starting to realize that it's creating this kind of anxiety of me and in, in me, and it's shaping the way that I see myself. And in the way that I relate, um, not just to things that have to do uh, with, my, with my health or my fitness, but with all the world around me. These before and after pictures. They did a work on me. They're powerful, powerful images to where, like, if I would have just seen the before picture, I wouldn't have even known that there was anything wrong with that picture until I saw the after picture. <laughs> and then suddenly there's this, there's this uh, tension that's created in me that distances me from my reality and, and, and catapults me into a fantasy world. where i feel dissatisfied with myself and the world around me all the time are you tracking with me this before and after kind of reality draws me maybe it draws you into a fantasy world that's distanced like from my real life so it draws me into this world of a, a different person a different body a different place a different time and all the difference are better. There are this prosper it's like prosperity. It's this vision, this fantasy vision of prosperity. And, and so I get distance from my actual life, and it seems like in, in the in what's created here is that I only have two ways forward now. As I'm gazing at these images, either either I can I can hustle my way toward prosperity, which is like an ever moving, ever changing target. It's like very vaporous, like I can't quite get at it, and it's distance enough from my reality that I can't actually step into it. But it works on me, so it's either like I'm either trying to pursue this prosperity, or I have to, or I'm like despairing at the fact that. I'm a loser. It's either prosperity or I'm a loser. And it seems like in our world, that's a lot of what our options are. Either we're moving toward this, this like fantasy world of, of prosperity, a certain kind of life, or we're a loser. And we're despairing at not, not prospering in that way. And so it leaves us dissatisfied. These, these images, gazing at these images, leave us accused they're a constant reminder of maybe unworthiness or that true flourishing is always out of reach. Christ the King, maybe, maybe when you look at Instagram, but maybe in some other area of your life, because it's in other areas of my life too, maybe you live haunted or accused by a world of these before and after pictures. Maybe it's with the kind of person that you feel like you are or the kind of body that you feel like you have or the kind of place where you feel like you live or the kind of season that you feel like that you're in. Maybe you feel haunted or accused by a world in which you have to pick prospering in some fantasy-type way or losing. Maybe you find yourself striving to be a different person in a different place in a better time with a different body. Have you experienced this, Christ the King? In the midst of this world of false icons, before and after icons, we proclaim the good news that what Christ reveals, Christ reveals that God is not primarily interested and invested in making us nicer, holier, and more moral people, but that God is wooing us into his presence so that we can share his life and join his mission. Christ the King, God is not primarily invested in making us nicer or or more moral necessarily or holier people, but God is invested in wooing us into his presence so that we can share in his life and join his mission. And so what that means for us is that in Epiphany and and all throughout our lives, we gaze at Christ in the context of our actual lives, right? Right? Of our, of our real, ordinary, normal lives because that's where Christ meets us. We gaze at Christ in the context of our, of, our, of our lives, our real lives, the lives that we actually live and the bodies that we're actually in, the places where we actually are, and the season that we're in because that is where Christ meets us, not in the life that we wish that we had but Christ meets us in our actual life because this is where God is inviting us into his presence so that we can share in his life and join in his mission. Because when we meet Christ in the real spaces of our lives, where we actually are, we find an invitation into a new way of life that pushes beyond this false dichotomy of prosperity or losing, a new way of life, it looks like sharing in God's life and joining his mission, and we can enter that today, Christ the King, today, tonight, we can meet with Christ where we actually are, because that's where Christ meets us tonight. To put this in uh, slightly different uh, words, what I'm saying, the implication of this is that Jesus' presence makes holy our vocation. Jesus' presence makes holy your vocation. And uh, by vocation, I'm using that in the broadest possible sense. So I'm not just talking about the things that you get paid to do if you are old enough to have a job or fortunate enough to have a job where you get paid to do something. It's inclusive of that, but I'm, I'm using vocation in, in the broadest possible sense. And what I'm describing by, by vocation is just the activity of our real lives. Your vocation is just the activity of your real life, who you are, where you are, and the activity that you are involved in in your real life, whether that is the job that you get paid for, or whether it's going to school, or playing sports, or raising kids, or doing whatever it is that you do. Jesus makes holy our vocation so that we can participate in God's vocation. And the way that Jesus does this, we see uh, in our gospel reading tonight. The way that God is doing this, making holy our vocation, is by proximity and inclusion. Proximity and inclusion. In Luke's gospel, all throughout Luke's gospel, we see that, that what Jesus is up to is that Jesus is on mission fulfilling God's redemptive activity. He's crossing radical boundaries. He's turning over Uh, the oppressive structures to, to liberate people so that they can become participators in God's mission. But that's what Jesus is doing. He's fulfilling God's redemptive mission. But we see that Jesus engaging in God's redemptive mission isn't doing this just by ramming the kingdom down people's throats, right? He's not dragging people, kicking and screaming into God's kingdom. But that Jesus is coming near and that he's inviting people to become participants in God's mission. That's what we see unfolding here, all in Luke's gospel. And we see, what we see in chapter 5 is that as Jesus is coming near, not bringing people kicking and screaming into God's kingdom, but actually inviting people, coming near and inviting people to become participants in his mission, what we see is that Peter discovers something. And what Peter discovers is that what we are invited to discover. And what Peter discovers is that to encounter God's holy presence, to encounter God's holy presence as a sinner, when we encounter God's holy presence as a sinner, it transforms our status as a sinner. And it includes us and makes us partners and participants in God's mission to redeem all things. This is what Peter discovers and again, all that, is, all that is, brings to the foreground the implication that God is not primarily invested in making us more nice or moral or holy people. What God is primarily invested in is coming near to us so that we can share in his life and join in his mission. And as we do that, as we do that, we begin to be able uh, to enter into the new life that takes us beyond where we actually are. And so there's, there's an epiphany in this text, believe it or not. In epiphany, we have a gospel reading where there's an epiphany. And the epiphany of this text is the miracle of the great catch. This is at the center of, of this, this story, which uh, if you spent long enough in church, you probably heard this story before. It's the miracle of the great catch. But before, I, before we look at it in total, I want to bring to the foreground up, up front um, a, a huge uh, key point for what's going on in this text, that we sometimes overlook. And it's that the miracle of the, of the big catch would have immediately made these disciples prosperous. Right? Like, he, Jesus brought in a bunch of money for these disciples whose, whose livelihoods were built on this certain economy, this fishing economy, The effect of the miracle is prosperity. But get this, yet, the disciples, Peter's response, and and, uh, and Andrew and, and James too, their response to this miracle of prosperity is to abandon that prosperity rather than capitalize on it in order to attach their life to a better life. To attach their life to Jesus' life. And so the point is that the miracle of prosperity is not, it, they're not capitalizing on it, but it's also not merely a sign that Jesus is all-knowing or all-powerful and then they can leave it at that and get back to their regular lives. This miracle of prosperity is rather a sign that a better thing and a new thing is possible. And that new way of life is drawing the disciples and it was drawing, it's drawing us beyond prosperity. Beyond either being a being prosperous or being a loser. And it's opening before them a new way of life. And they're being summoned to enter. And that new way of life is better because it's Jesus' life. Because it's God's life. They're being invited to attach their lives to Jesus' life. That's where, this is, that's where all this is headed. And so there's, there's three points that I want to I draw out that kind of bring, bring us into that. The first is is that Peter had heard Jesus' teaching, right? Jesus had um, uh, created a natural amphitheater for all these crowds that were pressing in on him by going out in in Peter's boat. He enters into Peter's life, takes his boat, and and does this teaching. Peter had had heard Jesus' teaching, but not only had Peter been someone who had heard his teaching, Peter also trusted Jesus' voice in the place where he felt most in control where he was an expert. Like remember, Peter and these other guys, this is what they did for a living. They were, they were pros at this. They knew it like in their sleep. And here Jesus comes in to the, this place, this vocation of Peter, where he was an expert, where he knew better than anybody else, strictly speaking, like on a surface level, better than Jesus, what it meant to catch fish. And here Jesus comes, like making an absurd claim. An absurd claim about how to catch fish. There, you could get into some details about how the, the claim that Jesus is making doesn't make any sense at all. And Peter's like being kind of like, oh, whatever you say, Jesus. But not, but not just whatever you say that, that we're finding. Not just whatever you say, but that we see that Peter, in this place where, where he's most in control, where he's most expert, where he doesn't actually probably need anybody's help, But but because it's the place of his vocation, has the place to be the, the, the source of the most potential joy, because he's an expert there, or the most pain, because it's where he has the most control. But Peter is open to the possibility. He's open. He's just demonstrating openness. Openness to the possibility that Jesus could matter for his whole life. That even in the places where, where, where Jesus' suggestion seems most absurd, that Jesus could matter there. He's just open to that possibility. And so what we're seeing for us is that our dependence on our own expertise and control over our own life to organize and to run our lives in a certain way can mean that Jesus' radical invitation to obey him can often sound and feel absurd. Right? Right? And just another another point here, because I think this matters for where some of us are. Notice that as we look at the whole story, that for Peter, obedience, just being open to what Jesus said, that leads to belief. It forms belief in him. He doesn't have to front everything with knowing, like believing all the things. Like Jesus is just inviting him to be open, to saying yes to his invitation. And then as, Jesus, as Peter says yes, as he's open to the absurdity of Jesus' invitation, then belief starts to form, right? That's important. Second thing, notice Peter's response to the epiphany of the miracle of the great catch. Because his response, if you were paying attention to the reading, sounds like whose response? Isaiah's response when When Isaiah is, is brought into, in, into god 's presence, he cries, uh, "Woe is me! for I am a, a man of unclean lips that 's his response to divine presence peter when when he sees this miracle in it and keys in on the fact that that jesus presence with him there is is a sign of, of not just an ordinary presence but a divine presence that Jesus is actually an agent of god 's redeeming mission, he key, keys in on all this and says, "Get away like Distance. I got to get away from this. I am a sinner. Depart from me. It's the same kind of thing happening there. What's important when we hear Peter's response is what he means by sinner, because when we hear uh, "woe is me, I'm a sinner," primarily, probably what we hear is an awareness of bad things that we've done, or thought, or thought about doing, or you know, like personal, individual things that we've done. Peter, Peter does mean that, but he means something bigger than that too. Because, because what Peter means and what Isaiah meant by sinner is just the, this reality of being distanced from God. And sometimes um, being distanced from God, especially in the Jewish imagination, not only had to do with things that you did wrong or didn't do right, it did include that, but it also just had to do with things that kept you from being in proximity to God. Whether it, was, whether it was something that you had done, a dead animal that you had touched, something a, a sickness or an ailment that you had, a certain season of life that you were going, there were various things that, that kept you, especially if you were lower on the socioeconomic scale, that kept you from being in God's presence, in proximity to God. It had to do with, with being near to God. And so that's important because Peter is not just saying, I have an awareness of, of I've done too much bad stuff. He is he might be saying that, that's probably included in there, but he's also experiencing shock that the divine presence would manifest itself in proximity to sinners, that the divine presence would come on a fishing boat, up in Galilee, far away from Jerusalem where God's presence was supposed to be in the temple. And even more than that, if divine presence had really showed up there on that fishing boat in Galilee like Peter thought it had, his situation, he thought, would surely mean bad news, not good news. But what we're seeing here of what God is doing is that his presence, his divine presence, is actually actually announcing the good news of how God is coming near to us in order to draw us into his life and to invite us into his mission. And so listen, the third thing is, listen to Jesus' response to Peter. And when Jesus speaks to Peter, Jesus is speaking to all of us, Jesus says, do not fear. From now on, you will be catching people. Peter learned, like Isaiah learned, that his proximity to God's presence would not destroy him. But rather that he would be gathered into God's life and mission. It's at the heart of what the gospel is all about. That, that that proximity, that distance is broken down. And that it doesn't mean our destruction, but that we get to be gathered into God's life and mission, if we would accept the invitation. Peter learned that the transformation of his, of his sinner status happens because Jesus came near not because he made himself better. Not because he worked hard enough to become that after picture. But simply because he came near. It's all Jesus' Jesus's agency here. It's his, it's his initiating move. And Jesus says, do not fear. Because this is what's happening. I'm going to make you a, a, a fisher. Uh, you're going to be catching people. And I know that if you're like anything like me, that phrase gathers up um, a specific, uh, probably a specific idea of, of evangelism, being uh, fishers of men, catchers of people, um, hook, lion, and sinker, you know. Um, there may be some truth in that. We can talk about that another day. But what I want to point out, <laughs> what I want to point out um, about primarily what's happening here is that when Jesus says this, and, and, and this is all coming with where Jesus is coming with his, his body and coming into their presence. There's correspondence with their actual lives. Jesus is saying, the work that I'm doing, and, and, and you, me meeting you, God meeting you, and you being gathered into God's life and his mission, there's correspondence with your life, which for them, it was fishing, it was, it was catching fish. There's correspondence there. And, and, and it's happening in your real life. And more than that, there's a new way of life that's opening up. A better way of life that's better than the prosperity that could come by being able to catch a bunch of fish. It's a life of discipleship. And the life of discipleship is nothing short than being able to attach their lives to Jesus' life so that they can be sharers in Jesus' life, so that they can commune with him and then become participants in God's mission. Several times over this past week, I was confronted with my... um, Lack of prosperity, or put in other ways, with my sinfulness. let just junk. With ways that I, I was not that after picture. In my instinct, maybe you're like me, my instinct when I was confronted with how I was, that not, I was not that after picture, was to dwell on who I wish that I was. And then, and then to either feel despairing because I, I didn't feel like I could get access to that after picture, or to start hustling and striving in order to try to reach that vaporous, like, uh, fantasy picture. I started this process of, if I could just be better, if I could just do more, if I could just have different. Have you heard yourself? Like, in that kind of mindset, even this week. I was thinking, I wish I could just communicate, if I could just communicate better, if I could just get to a time when I can sleep all night or Carolisa can sleep all night, if we could just do that, then I can meet with Jesus and and we'll get to that after picture. But into this place in my life this week, God is announcing that Jesus is making holy my vocation. That I can meet with Christ, I can gaze at Christ right in the midst of where I actually am and not where I wish that I was. And I'm learning, I'm learning just barely, a little bit, this week that as I meet with Jesus, as I gaze at Jesus, as I commune with him in my actual life, I'm finding that the life that he's calling me into is, is way better and deeper and, and more expansive than that afterlife that I thought that I needed. It's actually better than that. It goes beyond either the fantasy uh, prosperity life or the I'm a loser and despairing life. It's better than that. It's better than I had imagined. It's a better identity, a better mission. And I'm discovering that it's it's better for me and it's better for the community of people that I'm surrounded by, which includes you, but includes other people too. That it's better for the community that I'm surrounded by that, that my community gets to see, gets to witness me meeting Jesus in what, where I actually am. Not me trying to be the after person. Are you tracking with me? That's what I'm learning. That's what God is opening up for all of us tonight. Christ the King. We talk about communion a lot. I'm going to keep talking about it. Part of what we're saying is is that communion begins, communion with Christ begins right where we actually are. So where are you? Communion with Christ begins there, with our lives. Not who we wish that we were, where that we wish that we were, not how we wish we were. But Christ communion with Christ begins where our life really is. And so this looks like, just two quick things about what this can look like. It it can look like tending to Christ's presence in our wants. In our wants. We all have wants. We all, like it's just how we're we're built to to long for wholeness and fullness in our true humanity. And it gets co-opted and messed up by all the crazy icons that flash across our screens and our faces. Communing with Christ where we are might look like just beginning to commune with Christ in our wants. What do you want? It's amazing just like being able to stop and to invite Jesus or to recognize that Jesus is already present right there and that I, that you can turn over your wants there and be led into to a better place maybe or a different way. And it also looks like tending to Christ's presence in the place where we think we know how to run our lives. The places where I'm most often uh, ignorant of Christ's presence is where I feel like I most got it down. So maybe it's there for you. Maybe this is at work, at home. Maybe it's at school. Maybe it is a place where you think you got it going on, or maybe it's a place where you are hyper-aware that you are not the person or in the place or have the body or whatever that you want. Come, Christ the King gaze at Jesus tonight. Maybe in our, in our prayer tonight um, you can just pray this simple prayer uh, if you want to voice it out loud. Christ, meet me in wherever. Wherever that place where you actually are that you need to name. Meet me here tonight. Or meet us here tonight. Christ the King, tonight may we walk away with a thicker imagination for how God is wooing us into his presence so that we can share in his life and join in this mission. Amen.